This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Carl Zeiss 16mm, Wolverine photo, x-ray photos, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 335 for Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. And as usual, I'm covering the latest news stories for this past week that caught my eye on Petapixel. But first, I wanted to give everybody an update. The winner was selected for the Platypod Extreme Flat Tripod Giveaway. Congratulations to Sheila Stockslater of Upstate New York. She is the lucky winner, and her Platypod Extreme is already on its way to her home she will have that on Monday. But don't despair. I will have another contest coming up in the very near future, so you'll have more opportunities to win some free photography gear. All right, so let's head over to Petapixel for this week and see what they have for us. Wide-eyed with the Carl Zeiss 16mm F8 Hologon. Dramatic, restrictive, and humbling are three words, words I'd use to describe the Carl Zeiss 16mm F8 Hologon ultra-wide lens that I shoot adapted to Leica M film cameras. While the aforementioned three words may not immediately conjure the gas gods in most circumstances, those descriptions have pushed me in a way where I can draw a direct line between the use of this lens and my growth as a photographer. This has led me to me reaching for the Hologon more than any other lens in my stable. It never leaves my bag. My initial outings with the Hologon were full of failures. Fingers in the frame, strap in the frame, and primarily photos that just didn't feel like I'd gotten close enough to the subject. As I had picked up the lens in early 2020, it was soon impractical in a socially distanced world to practice using the lens much in the way that I had hoped. In fact, I almost sold it. In spite of struggling with the Hologon, I just couldn't seem to put it down. There's just something about the way that an M camera handles with this ultra-wide pancake mounted. It's no secret that a lot of photographers are drawn to this camera system due to its compact size and versatile mount. The Hologon really brings into focus what is possible with the M mount. Not wanting to take the lens off the camera had me shooting it more and spending a lot of time thinking about ways to make things that I'd be happy with. In short, I'd need to get closer. A lot closer. I contend that the ultra-wide lenses are at their best when foreground elements are shot at or originate from in front of the lens's minimum focusing distance. For the Hologon 16mm f8 lens, this means shooting with the camera about one foot from a subject. There's no other way to say it. This is an uncomfortable thing to do. I'd have a pep talk internal monologue on my way to shoot and still find myself shooting at two to three meters. I'd look at the negatives and feel really disappointed that subjects weren't prominent in the frame. Eventually, I just started setting the lens to what I'd like to call hyperfocal, hypofocal distance. Just as the name implies, it's the opposite of hyperfocal distance and works on the same principle. 
Using the very well-appointed focus scale on the lens, I'd set focus at 0.6 meters. This allowed for everything from 0.4 to 1.5 to be in focus. Users of this lens may note that the true minimum focusing distance on this lens is 0.3 meters, but I found that if photographing people, I wasn't likely to be just 0.3 meters or one foot from the person's eye, so 0.4 meters to 1.5 meters worked perfectly to force me closer to subjects for more engaging compositions. Listen, I get it. 16 millimeters f8 is about as impractical as it gets for a daily carry lens. That said, I just have so much fun shooting with this thing mounted on my camera. Something I want out of my photography is to always be challenging myself to make photos I like while not walking the easiest path. I want it to be a little tricky. It makes me appreciate the photos I do like a bit more, and when we push ourselves, we grow. Somewhat machinistic. Yeah, I, I think I pronounced that right. Sure, but it's the path I've chosen with my image making, and the shoe seems to fit well enough. The 16mm F8 Carl Zeiss Holigon has existed as a few variations of the same fixed aperture theme. Originally, the lens was set into a fixed mount of dedicated camera, the Zeiss Icon Holigon Ultrawide. That lens was 15mm, and the optics were a bit more complicated to manufacture. Leica was seemingly a fan of the lens in that camera and commissioned a limited run of native N-mount 15mm F8 Holigons to be made. It's a rather short list of lenses that Leica has farmed out to third parties over the years. I believe it's a testament to the technical prowess it required to make the lens. Later, for the Contax G-series cameras, Carl Zeiss released the last of the Holigons, a 16mm F8 iteration that used additional lens elements that effectively made the manufacturing process somewhat less daunting. This was the only Contax G-mount lens to be made exclusively in Germany. It's these later lenses that are typically converted over to Leica M-mount via a largely non-destructive process that can be reversed. Ever hear this one before? The lens has zero distortion. I know, I know, but hear me out. We're going to need to play the if game. But I am telling you that if you compose your shot perfectly square on all axes, you will not be able to detect any distortion whatsoever. It's just not there. That said, in the event that you are not shooting the camera on a flawless leveled surface or using the Leica Universal Wide Angle Viewfinder with its onboard bubble level, known hereafter as the Frankenfinder, you can go ahead and expect copious amounts of perspective distortion. Even if the camera is only slightly tweaked, you will be painfully aware of that misstep when reviewing your photos. Speaking of viewfinders, it should go without saying that if you hope to frame critically with the Holigon, you are going to need an external finder of some sort. Typically, you'll find the lens sold with the finder that came with the set when it was new. It is large with a decent eye relief and it has a bubble level built into it. It's a champagne finish that closely matches the silver, or maybe they call it titanium Contax G cameras. But there are two issues I have with this finder. First, the bubble level is exclusively forward and back leveling as opposed to leveling on all axes. I have no clue why they've done this when complete leveling is so critical to achieving zero distortion. Secondly, the field of view is too narrow. I'm not entirely certain what's going on here, but at least on the Leica M cameras, either the finder 
is tight or the lens is actually wider than 16 millimeters. With the original finder, if we're calling that 16 millimeters, expect to get at least 15 millimeters worth of frame. Earlier, I mentioned Leica's Frankenfinder. As an owner of a 16 millimeter, or is it 15 millimeters, and 24 millimeter lens, and wide curious to say the least, I've invested in one of these monstrosities. I don't think you could do better than the Frankenfinder as a 16, 18, 21, 24, 28 millimeter multi-finder with parallax correction and illuminated brightness. The star of the show is its glow-in-the-dark multi-axis bubble level. But listen, there's no other way to say it. The thing is enormous. When shooting quickly in a crowded environment, I'll often use no finder at all. The same rules of shooting close apply, and essentially everything you can see is in the frame. No, not girthy bad news. This thing actually produces a wider negative than any other lens you've ever shot on an M. The reason for this is the bulbous rear element that sits deeply into the film chamber. This allows the image circle to slip under the side baffles as the light is projected at such a shallow angle. Pretty cool, right? Well, not so fast. While the exposed frame is without question wider than norm, the camera's framing, frame spacing is not adjusted to make up for this parlor trick. What that means for you and your lab is that the blank space between frames basically no longer exists. Scanning Holigon negatives is a pain, and depending on your lab or scanning setup, it may result in some additional work. The only way to describe the Carl Zeiss Holigon is small. It's only slightly prouder on the camera than a body cap, even when the, with the lens cap on. It's really pretty incredible, but with lenses as in life, there are no free lunches. With the angle of view being so dramatic and the lens mounted so close to the body, it is really hard to keep your fingers out of the frame until you've trained yourself to grip the camera appropriately for the lens. You're probably going to learn that the hard way. Another drawback of this shallow mount lens is that the otherwise wonderful brass focus lever may hit the frame line selector of your M camera. You can, you can ignore this and not focus closely, but I think that would be a mistake. You'll find that if you buy a previously mount modified hologon, it may already have the backside of the focus lever shaved to clear the lever. Mine was unshaven, so I very carefully addressed it on a bench grinder. Maybe you'll be more cautious and use a Dremel tool. That would be a better choice. The Holigon vignettes. It's not an insignificant amount either. Because of that, the lens originally shipped with a radical center filter. No, a reverse ND of sorts to lift the exposure in the corners by knocking down the exposure in the middle. This filter effectively turns the F8 lens into an F16 lens. That's just too high a cost for me, and I've never used, nor do I own the center filter. I've seen plenty of results with the center filter in use, and I always feel like there are some odd artifacts. I prefer the natural vignette profile of the optics, and as I tend to overexpose my film, it seems to minimize the vignette. All this is to say that you should take your feelings on lens vignetting into consideration when deciding if this lens is for you. But it's f8. I get it. f8 is slow, and the fact that it's a fixed aperture further restricts the user's ability to blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear it. I'd implore anyone considering this lens to really learn 
are lean into its quirks. Yes, the lens is slow, but it's also a 16 millimeter with its weight placed largely inside the camera body. The Holagon on an M camera is a remarkably stable setup. With even a minor attempt at remaining still, one can successfully pull off very long handheld exposures. An F8 or even a uh, or even a fourth of a second is more than doable. No need for extreme ISOs or multi-stop push processing. You can do it. Do you own a monochrome camera? Good news, you're golden. Do you own anything other than a monochrome camera? You'll be converting to black and white. The purple and magenta are too much to overcome. Don't even try. If you adapt the lens to a digital camera like a Sony A7 series camera, you may not be able to safely shoot at infinity. There's no fun. That's no fun anyways. I've actually shot a couple of frames of this lens adapted to an A7 via a close focus adapter. With the adapter fully extended and the lens set to its minimum focusing distance, not only does it focus very, very closely, but it actually produces some shockingly nice out-of-focus elements. Who knew? So in conclusion, after three years with the Holocon, I can honestly say that I have never enjoyed shooting a lens more than this on any system. It pushes me to think and see in ways that no other lens does. It's impractical, difficult to use, and when used on film, produces a negative that can be hard to work with. And none of that matters to me, because when I shoot with it, I'm having too much fun to worry about any drawbacks. And I thought this was an interesting article. And now I don't have this Carl Zeiss Octagon or Hologon lens. I do have a Carl Zeiss 12 millimeter f2.8 for the Fujifilm X mount. However, I do have two 18 millimeter cap lenses. Uh, one that's made by Fun Leader and one that I think was made by Seven Artisans. And the Seven Artisans one, which is the one I most recently bought, that one actually does F6.3, uh, where the Fun Leader is an F8. And I do sometimes like to take those fixed lenses out and have some fun with them. It does challenge you to think of your compositions a little bit differently when you're using such a wide lens to compose your shots but it can be a lot of fun as well. Photographer captures once-in-a-lifetime photo of a wolverine. A photographer attempting to shoot ospreys in the wild was not having much luck when suddenly an ultra-rare wolverine appeared. Gordon Cook could not believe his eyes when the elusive creature suddenly appeared unexpectedly and quickly trained his camera on it. Quote, I was not having luck finding the osprey, but some crows were in the nearby trees gathering nesting material. So I started photographing them, Cook tells Petapixel. Quote, I heard something crashing through the marsh area nearby. I wasn't sure what it was, but it was moving quickly, he continues. It finally broke into the open and posed for me temporarily, allowing me to get my shots before disappearing again. Cook captured the photos in Calgary, Alberta, where... They were once common, but loss of habitat has led to a significant decline of the muscular carnivore. He only had five seconds with the wolverine and initially thought it was a porcupine, but he had his Canon R5 with a 100-400 millimeter lens ready. Quote, it felt great. It is moments like this that make all the early wake-ups and all the hours in the field worth it, Cook says. To be honest, I was surprised how viral this has gone, but it has been a great experience. I am glad that people enjoyed the photos as much as I enjoyed taking them. 
Wolverines are the largest member of the weasel family and are bear-like. They have a reputation for ferocity and strength and the ability to kill prey many times larger than itself. Quote, I think that is the dream for most wildlife photographers to capture because they are such a beautiful, elusive and interesting creature, adds Cook. But I never thought I would ever get pictures of one like this. Cook shared the photos on his Twitter page where they received 100,000 views with local Calgary Press picking up on the story. More about Cook's work can be found on his website and Twitter. And I must say, congratulations to you, Gordon. That is definitely a rare find in wildlife photography. And I'm glad to see that you were able to get some amazing images. And I highly recommend my listeners check out his photos in this article in today's show notes for yourself. X-ray photo series shows everyday objects in an incredible, unique way. Commercial photographer Andre Duman has been chipping away at his X-ray series for about a year now. When not doing work for clients, Duman likes to experiment with personal projects, and this one aims to showcase the products people use in daily life in a fresh new way and shows what's beneath their skin. Quote, I was fascinated with the way the internal mechanical arrangements, the wiring and contraptions you normally do not see show up when exposed to x-rays, Duman tells Petapixel. One of the more time-consuming parts of the project has been selecting the right products to expose to x-rays. Duman has photographed Lego, video game consoles and controllers, general technology products like drones and headphones, a wider range of Apple products, and more. The process of choosing the right items and finding them was quite time-consuming, Duman says. For example, it took him a long time to find all the different iPhone models, as some of them are now quite old and people don't often keep them after a few years. Duman wants to ensure the the X-ray project isn't just a random collection of items, but rather that there's a pattern to the things he photographs. It was essential to find different objects that people often use, even if they're not necessarily everyday objects like smartphones and computers. For example, Duman photographed an electric keytar, a cassette, a collection of television remotes, many different children's toys, his foot inside a sneaker, and much more. The diversity of subjects is astounding. The only artistic limit is Duman's imagination. However, there are practical limits he must overcome. The tablet he uses to capture X-ray images is around 64 by 64 centimeters or 25 by 25 inches, though there are size restrictions. Further, it's not possible to focus stack the X-ray images. Believe me, I asked, Duman tells Petapixel. The introduction of the human element to the series is a relatively recent addition. The human factor is an excellent addition, but Petapixel asked Duman about any safety risks. Quote, the device has multiple settings for different body areas, such as skull, shoulder, hand, femur, clavicle, foot, etc. And these all have different amounts of radiation that gets generated when the x-ray image is taken. It took Duman some time to dial in the correct settings for different objects. Ultimately, the machine's foot setting delivered the most consistent results. While focus stacking wasn't possible, Dumont has used compositing in a few instances when items combine thin plastic and heavy electronics. These occasionally required X-ray captures of different intensities, which were then composited during post-processing. 
Dumont uses Capture One to perform minor edits and global adjustments and Adobe Photoshop to apply the finishing touches. Quote, for the most part, post-processing was fairly straightforward with only small adjustments needed. The most time-consuming aspect was masking the items and changing the background to black. However, some items were larger than the tablet and required multiple shots of different sections that needed to be stitched together. Dubon says that these were the most problematic and challenging shots. Quote, this became especially problematic when we were doing Lego that needed multiple images due to the way the individual bricks showing show through when stacked. It would be almost impossible to line up all the sections correctly, Dumont explains. However, the Lego shots were well worth the effort. Quote, the angle of the way the x-ray shoots straight down means that the bricks have an almost in-motion feel to them, and they fall away from the viewer in multiple directions. I love the effect of that because it feels dramatic, Dumont tells Petapixel. Petapixel asked Dumont if he had a particular favorite x-ray image. Quote, I love all of the series for different reasons. The Apple products are fascinating to see what's on the inside, which is the same for all the other tech ones. I was interested to see how things we use daily and usually take for granted. I wanted to look internally, but in a different way. How many people have thought about their Roombas inner wiring and mechanics? The video game consoles were a fun way to tackle the familiar in an unfamiliar way and connecting with a range wide range of viewers. However, some old consoles have proven challenging to find, including the ColecoVision, the Commodore 64, and the Sega Pico, to name a few. If any Petapixel readers have antique game consoles, including the ones listed, and would like to let Dumont borrow them for x-ray images, they should contact him. While Dumont has required help to track down numerous items for his series, he's also worked with fellow artists. For example, he worked with supremely talented and renowned sculpture artist Nathan Soleya to x-ray Soleya's yellow Lego sculpture. Soleya graciously allowed Dumont to take the original build, which has been toured worldwide, and x-ray it. Because of the sculpture size, he needed multiple images, and it was the single most difficult and time-consuming image in Dumont's x-ray series. More of Andre Dumont's x-ray images are available on his website, along with the rest of his commercial and personal photography work. He can also be found on Instagram. And there is an accompanying YouTube video or Vidmo video that you can watch that's in this article in the show notes. Dumont's commercial work is highly technical and detail-oriented, and that applies to his personal projects as well. Last year, Dumont wrote on Petapixel about his incredible macro bug photos. And I want to say congratulations to him for coming up with a unique way to do a photo series using an x-ray machine. Not exactly something that every photographer could do. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I have an x-ray machine laying around the studio anywhere. Not that I found yet anyways. A simple technique to photograph standing waves on water. By using a simple mechanical oscillator attached to a plastic cup, a number of unique standing wave patterns can be created. The resulting photographs are similar to geometric man mandala patterns and thus are popular subjects for photography students. Waves created in a shallow dish can form beautiful patterns when the containers achieve resonance. This effect has been studied by many great scientists, including Galileo, uh, Galilee, Robert Hooke, and physicist Ernst Shalandi. 
However, it was not until the mid-1960s when the eccentric Swiss physician Hans Jenning, 1904-1972, coined the name semantics for the effect, or semantics. Jenny developed the theory of pseudoscience linking the patterns to a mythical energy field. In reality, the patterns have long been understood by physicists who can describe the patterns with a mathematical formula that is dependent on the fluid viscosity, mass of the fluid, speed of sound in the fluid, size and shape of the container, and frequency of the vibration. All physics aside, the patterns are easy to photograph with a simple setup, and they are quite beautiful. To create these patterns, I use several different photographic setups. The simple setup uses a surplus mechanical oscillator that runs from 2 volts to over 12 volts. The motor shaft has an off-axis mass on it that causes the motor to vibrate, a process similar to an unbalanced wheel on a car. I bought several mechanical oscillating motors for a few dollars each from an electronic surplus company called All Electronics. But you can also fasten a bolt to any electrical motor to get the same effect. Many different sizes of oscillators can be purchased surplus, ranging from cell phones to pagers to motors for vibrating plastic casing or casting. Some of the small cell phone oscillators work quite well with lightweight dishes made from aluminum foil. In the simplest setup, the motor is taped to the stem of a plastic martini glass, champagne wine, or any other plastic glass will work. I am mainly interested in plastic that will take a lot of vibration without breaking and have different diameters. The smaller the mass of water the container holds, the easier it is to vibrate. Many different patterns can be achieved by using everything from bottle caps to soap dishes. To get a good reflection off the surface of the water in the plastic glass, a few drops of India ink are added to the water to absorb any light that enters the water. Only about 5% of the light that hits the vibrating surface is reflected, so the brighter the lights used for the illumination, the better. My light source of choice is a 24 LED NeoPixel ring light sold by Adafruit.com. This light can be driven by some simple code on an Odorino that takes three leads, power, five volts, ground, and a control pin. I connect the control pin to a simple switch so I can turn the control pin off when I get a lighting color I like. The control line to the light is only used to update the color pattern. The ring light can be programmed to make any color or have a slow-moving rainbow. Once the power supply is attached to the oscillation motor, the change in voltage will create a change in frequency of the vibrations. Each dish has its own resonant frequency dependent on the size of the dish, the depth of the water, and the frequency of the oscillator. There are a lot of factors to experiment with. The oscillating motor can easily create frequencies up to several hundred hertz. The exposure is one of the most interesting variables to change. By increasing the exposure time, several oscillations can be added together. A triangle vibration pattern becomes a six-pointed pattern by doubling the exposure. Double the exposure again and get a 12-sided shape. Not only does experimentation lead to different patterns, but the results can be quite beautiful. Besides changing the exposure, the size and the shape of the container can also be changed. Triangular-shaped dishes can be folded out of aluminum foil. There are a huge number of changes that can be made. Experiment and have fun. If the oscillation plastic glass is replaced by a speaker under the dish and a sine wave generator is used to drive the speaker, different vibrations can be observed.
Samples of these patterns can be found below, and you can see these videos in this article in the show notes that are posted to YouTube and check them out for yourself. And I think this is a really cool thing to do. I remember watching an episode of Big Bang Theory where they actually took some plastic cellophane and they put it over a subwoofer speaker from a house stereo system and they made a mixture of cornstarch and water, I think it was, and they created a liquid that when you applied sound to it from the speaker would turn into a solid and dance around. And then when you turn the sound off again, it would revert back to its liquid state. And I always thought that was a pretty cool experiment as well. All right, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Woman posing for photo is screamed at by the King's Guard. A member of the King's Guard in London screamed at a tourist after she got too close to him while trying to take a photo. The amusing clip was posted on the King's Guard official TikTok page where it garnered over 27 million views. In the clip, the woman can be seen getting too close to the king's guard outside Buckingham Palace. The guard turns towards her and screams, Do not touch the king's lifeguard, causing her to jump back in shock. The king's guard is responsible for protecting the British monarchy and the crown jewels, and their duties include standing still for extended periods of time among tourists. Despite their seemingly stoic demeanor, the guards are not to be taken lightly. They are trained to respond quickly and forcefully to any perceived threat. The incident serves as a reminder to visitors that the guard should be respected and not treated as tourist attractions. Quote, tourists just don't get it, writes one TikTok user. They are the king's guard. They will kill you if they have to. Quote, he's not a show attraction. He's there to guard the king. Got a job to do, adds another. While the guards may seem like part of the British tourist experience, they are professionals who are trained to protect King Charles III and his family. Quote, we want to ensure all those who visit the horse guards have an enjoyable time, says a spokesperson for the Ministry of Defense. Quote, this area is particularly busy with tourists, and on occasion, the soldiers undertaking guard duty need to shout loudly to alert members of the public if they get too close. This is for the safety of those on duty and the public. Unsurprisingly, this is not the first time that this has happened. Last year, a similar video went viral after a woman touched a horse belonging to the Queen's Guard, as they were known before Queen Elizabeth's death. In 2015, a photographer was almost bowled over by a marching troop in London. And you can check out the TikTok video for yourself in this article in today's show notes. And I never understood that about people. I, I've never been to London myself, but... If I went there, I sure as heck would not screw with the King's Guard. They are there to do an important job. Leave them be. They're not a tourist attraction. This optical illusion photo was not taken from space. 
A viral photo has the internet users scratching their heads as an apparent image of Earth taken from space isn't what it seems. However, it's an excellent example. Oh, I'm sorry. At first glance, the photo appears to show the Earth's uh, curvature, complete with oceans, clouds, atmospheric layers, and twinkling stars far off in the cosmos. However, it is an excellent, excellent example of an optical illusion messing with the human brain because it is not what it appears. What is it then? The Flodo, cleverly rotated to throw people off the scent, is actually a picture of a city skyline with faint sunlight gently illuminating the sky. Nope, did not see the city, writes Average Jeff on Twitter. I had to read this tweet to see it. Crazy, adds Gabriella Mazala. Some even suggested that the optical illusion photo looked like Universal Pictures opening credits. A popular Italian science commentator, uh, communicator by the name of Massimo, Massimo shared the photo on April 4th, and it has received a staggering 5 million views. However, the photo is seemingly a few years older than 2023, and Petapixel's research tracked the original photo down to an account from the Philippines. It appears the photo was taken from a tall building above Catupanan Avenue in Manila by a man named Jamo Favidal. Earlier this week, Petapixel shared a remarkable optical illusion photo of a bird standing at the edge of a body of water that has a wall's reflection, creating a brain-breaking photo. Optical illusions happen when we try and make a quick assumption about the world around us. Our brains will come to a fast first conclusion before we realize what, we, what it is we are actually looking at. Our brains and our eyes evolved to be hypersensitive. This allowed our ancestors to interpret predators and spot threats before it was too late. According to the University of Queensland, scientists still do not understand exactly how optical illusions work, despite plenty of research. And it is a really cool image. I highly recommend you check it out for yourself because it does look like a photograph of the Earth from space, but it is not. It's just a cool sunset photograph. ProGrade Digital's latest software lets you update a memory card's firmware. ProGrade Digital has updated its Refresh Pro computer software, a tool for maximizing the performance of a card and monitoring product health, with the ability to update the firmware of its memory cards. Memory cards have typically not come packed with the ability to update firmware. What buyers get out of the box is usually the end of the story. The update to Refresh Pro version 3.1 now includes the ability to do so, though, on CF Express Type B cards, SD cards, and micro SD cards. I'm going to have to download this software because I do have pro-grade SD cards, and I didn't realize you could update the firmware on them. Wes Brewer, founder and CEO of ProGrade Digital, says that the feature is a tool that will allow photographers to ensure their cards are always safely operating at maximum capacity. The company says that the new New field of firmware upgradable FFU capability allows customers to upgrade the firmware and their memory cards by themselves, which it says will ensure greater compatibility with new camera releases. Additionally, ProGrade Digital gains the ability to release enhancements to card functionality that may be needed, as Brewer says, to ensure premium operation on a continued basis. Version 3.1 comes with three highlighted features, the aforementioned firmware upgrade capability for CF Express Type-B, SD, and microSD cards, eject functionality of individual cards, 
and early detection of compatible prograde digital cards to improve the user experience. Cards that are compatible with Refresh Pro are denoted by the R logo seen above, which will be physically printed on the card. Refresh Pro was originally released in 2019 separate from the Recovery Pro software with the promise that it could allow photographers to check on the overall health of a memory card and then refresh it to perform a factory new condition. This health check feature tells photographers whether a memory card should be confidently, uh, confidently used, cautiously used, or replaced depending on detected usage. If the card has less than 10% life remaining based on its design limits, the software will suggest photographers avoid using it for critical shoots and replace the card as soon as possible. The restoration of a card to factory condition is part of Refresh Pro's sanitize function, and while it can't undo the normal aging process of a card, ProGrade Digital says it allows a card, regardless of its age, to perform faster and respond better to write operations of the camera. Refresh Pro is available for $10 per year directly from ProGrade Digital after a six-month free trial. And I'm not sure off the top of my head if any of my ProGrade memory cards have the R on them. I don't know if they do or not, so I'll have to check that out. And if they do, maybe I'll subscribe to the software. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. And last for this week, the winners of the GDT Nature Photographer of the Year 2023. The German Society for Nature Photography, GDT, has announced the winners of its annual members competition, the GDT Nature Photographer of the Year 2023. Each year, the GDT holds a competition for the Society's members in contrast to the GDT European Wildlife Photographer of the Year contest, which is open to all European photographers. That said, the GDT T is open to non-German photographers. In this year's contest, 424 GDT members from 13 countries entered with nearly 7,000 images submitted. German photographer Silke Hoch has been named GDT Nature Photographer of the Year 2023 for her image, Scenes of a Marriage. The winning photo shows a pair of birds on a utility pole looking in opposite directions. Quote, I have this habit of constantly looking for birds wherever I am. So every time I pass this electricity pole, I look up there, is always some kind of bird sitting there, she says. Quote, as was the case on this somewhat dull day in September 2021, when I glanced up and spotted the kite sitting there on one end and shortly after a second one arriving to settle on the opposite end. This seemed to get exciting. Were the two a pair of rivals? Hoping for some action-filled photography, I took out my camera and waited. Initially, my wish was for interaction between them, but they just seemed to have nothing to say to each other and kept looking in opposite directions. In the end, I was fascinated by this scene of perfect symmetry, and luckily both birds remained still for long enough until I had the picture I wanted, she continues. Silky Hucci, a 58-year-old wildlife nature photographer, is only the second woman to be named the overall winner in the competition's 51-year history. The GDT hopes that her victory, along with the growing number of women participants, is a good sign that the historically male-dominated genre of nature photography is beginning to better reflect society at large. The contest includes seven categories, birds, mammals, other animals, plants and fungi, landscapes, nature studio, and urban nature. Hoochie's overall winning image took first place in the urban nature category. 
The winners and runners-up each received prizes sponsored by AC Photo, the GDT's longtime partner. For her overall victory, she received an OM System OMD EM1X camera and a 45mm f1.8 lens provided by OM Digital Solutions. And there are some beautiful images in this story in the show notes. Photographer Dominic uh, John Saka won the prize of the jury for his image beyond the images of double exposure captured in Saxon, Switzerland National Park. In addition to the winning images featured in the article, the GDT selected the top 10 images for each category. These images can be viewed on the GDT Nature Photographer of the Year 2023 website. And congratulations to all the winners. You have some absolutely stunning images. And I enjoyed very much looking at each and every one of them. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 335 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing an Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media. And hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new videos release. And also wanted to remind you, as I said on Thursday, this coming Wednesday, the 26th, there is a new product coming to the market that is incredibly exciting. I can't tell you yet what it is due to non-disclosure agreements, but it is an exciting item. I'm actually really excited by this new product, and I can't wait until it is available so I can get my hands on it myself. All right, now please remember that the May 4th episode of the Liam Photography Podcast will be my interview with Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake, formerly of DP Review TV, who have since moved to Petapixel. They will be starting on their new channel May 1st, so make sure you subscribe to that channel now so you don't miss any of their fantastic content. And I have a feeling it's going to be a great interview when I sit down with those two gentlemen on the 30th to have that conversation. All right, that wraps this one up. I will see you all again on Thursday.